Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. I'm a composer, conductor, and music educator. On this podcast, I talk with other composers and discover how they began their journey into composition. Join me each week as we explore their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. To learn more about this podcast and access a complete archive of episodes, including the series of shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website at sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Nell Shaw-Cohen. Nell is an American composer, librettist, and multimedia artist. She earned a bachelor's degree in composition from the New England Conservatory and a master's degree also in composition from New York University. Cohen is an alumna of the Composers in the Voice Fellowship with the American Opera Project and Nautilus Music Theater's Composer Librettist Studio at New Dramatists, and her work was first runner-up for the 2020 Zepic Modern Opera Competition. A 75-minute album of Cohen's choral and vocal works commissioned by Skylark Vocal Ensembles titled Sauntering Songs was released by Skylark in 2023. Nell Shaw Cohen, welcome to Movable Dough. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here today. So I have really enjoyed getting to dive into some of your music while preparing for our interview today, but I didn't find too much about your formative years, so let's go there. I saw online that you were raised in uh, dual hometowns of San Francisco, California and Sag Harbor, New York. So was this simultaneously hopping back and forth or were these two different periods of your life? Yeah, uh, so it was simultaneously. I I spent my whole upbringing hopping back and forth between San Francisco and Sag Harbor. And, um, you know, as a result, I really identify with both West Coast and East Coast as hometown and uh, I also, you know, lived in both rural and urban environments. So I kind of have that, you know, dual identity between those two places. That is amazing. So was it like six months in one place, six months in another? How how were you splitting that time? So for most of the time, it was, I'd say like a 70-30 split favoring San Francisco, which where, okay. I, was, where I was born as well. Um, and then, you know, for a number of years in my teen years, we were full-time in Sag Harbor. So I'd say majority San Francisco, but we spent a lot of time uh, on the east end of Long Island as well. Well, I, I bet you got used to that time shift between the two locales. But oh, yeah. <laughs> they're not exactly close. <laughs> Yeah. So when during this time did you start making music? Were you taking piano lessons or what, what were you doing? Uh, you know, I think I was had various musical experiences throughout childhood, but I think I really started making music in a concerted and focused way around 12 or 13 when I started taking guitar lessons. Oh, guitar. Um, like rock and folk guitar. And, you know, I was making up songs from nursery school pretty much, but the guitar was sort of my my start on a formal music education path. Very cool. Were you listening to um, any rock and folk guitarists that were influencing you as you were playing? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I mean, I was raised on all like the great stuff, like the Beatles was something I was obsessed with as a kid. But as I got more seriously into performance, I really was interested in 1970s progressive rock. Okay. So my guitar heroes were like, you know, Steve Howe, for example, from the band Yes. So yeah. that was kind of what I was looking up to at the time. That's very cool. Was your was your family musical as well? You know, both my parents had uh, like music backgrounds in school. But at the time I was growing up, there wasn't really music making in the household. Um, but okay. they were very, you know, keen on exposing me to a range of performing arts. So we did go to concerts and 
music was in my life, but not um, in a professional capacity. <laughs> well, you you started making a name for yourself fairly quickly as a composer. So I ran into a nice post about you by Arts Global back when you were 22, talking about performances of your recent compositions. So did you start writing music at a fairly young age as you were playing guitar? Um, you know, I, I started writing rock songs really early on. Um, and I think I started shifting to chamber music composition and really, uh, you know, music in the concert music tradition of writing notes on a page and presenting mm -hmm. them to performers, uh, really when I was in my late teens. Oh, yeah. And at that point, I had already sort of started on the path of trying to build a career as a uh, songwriter and multi-instrumentalist in the progressive rock vein, released an album that I'd recorded. And then I kind of made a pivot to concert music, took some composition lessons and then pursued conservatory education when I was around 20 at New England Conservatory. So um, I guess I started making music young, but I didn't come to concert music and formal composition training until I was 18, 19, 20, so. That's awesome. So so you made this shift into concert music, but what did you see yourself becoming? Did you see when you were growing up, did you see yourself becoming a a prog rock like performer yeah. or or did you have other aspirations or what did you see yourself becoming? Um so when I was younger, I was actually really focused on visual art and I saw a life in fine art and illustration and I was studying um you know painting and drawing for quite a few years. And then when I, by the time I was like in my mid teens, like around 16, that was when I got really into music performance and really um, thought I might go into um, like more of a performance career on uh -huh. rock instruments and, and got a little bit of jazz training at the same time. So it was kind of like a not super direct path, but um, I, I was always obsessed with the arts in some capacity. Yeah. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to have a life in the arts and just finding the exact avenue for that was, you know, that journey that I went on. Yeah. So what do you think it is that made that switch to concert music? So, uh, yeah, when I recorded my album around 17, um, I soon after that got really interested in concert music composition. And there were a number of different reasons for that. One of which was that I felt like the professional and educational and artistic opportunities that lay on that path were really exciting to me. And I could kind of envision what my future might look like there in a way that was very motivating. And when I was thinking about writing for classical performers, it just opened up this musical palette of, oh, I could write for you know, flute and tuba and harpsichord. And like, it was like, you know, kid in a candy store. Um, and it kind of opened up possibilities that you know, I, I was feeling a little limited in my writing only for myself as a rock uh -huh. instrumentalist. So, well, I, I want to hear that trio with the flute, the tuba and the harpsichord. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I wrote that arrangement, but I definitely wrote for all of those instruments within like year one of coming to conservatory because I just wanted to try everything. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, as you're beginning your compositional journey and you're learning how to write this concert music, were there other composers that were inspiring you? Yeah. Well, when I first got into early music, um, one of my first really strong interests, or sorry, when I got into concert music, one of my first really strong interests was early music. Uh -huh. So I got you know very interested in Renaissance, counterpoint, Renaissance choral music, uh, Monteverdi, 
um, Bach, you know, those classics. And I also became interested in contemporary music that was performed by early music specialist groups, which is kind of a specific niche. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I, I listened to everything that the Hilliard Ensemble recorded. So that was, you know, encompassing Arvo Pert, Stephen Hartke, like a pretty wide range of contemporary composers who were writing for vocal ensemble at the time. And uh, once I was in conservatory, I really started expanding my references to orchestral music and different kinds of chamber music. And I loved like Charles Ives and Janacek and Sibelius and that kind of like, you know, late 19th to early 20th century orchestral music. So there was a pretty, uh, you know, wide range of influences that I was exposed to. And I think um, definitely the rock music, um, you know, progressive rock music, it has carried forth in my musical vocabulary in a, a lot of ways, you know, the rhythmic sensibility, sort of funky grooves and syncopation. Yeah. And definitely early music, 16th century counterpoint is a big element in my writing today. And, you know, the sort of like melodic or um, color palette sensibility of some of that early 20th century orchestra music is in there. So it's all, those are all kind of in, in the, the mix. Cool. Well, we'll definitely have to listen for some of that in our, in the second half of our program today. So in addition to composing, you list yourself as a multimedia artist. So what all does that encompass? Yeah, so I describe myself as a multimedia artist because I also do video and photography and interactive media design and painting. And sometimes those things uh, come into conversation with my music and uh, I'm able to create pieces that bring one or more of those elements together with music. So yeah, that's kind of like why I use that moniker because it's it's broad enough to encompass that range of activities. Yeah, I, I've I looked at some of the examples you have on your website of the of the photos and video that you have that go along with some of your pieces. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, so thanks. I, I have to ask: Do you design websites as well? Because your website was actually beautifully organized and very easy to access. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I do design websites. Yeah, I've been designing websites since I was a little kid, and it's always been, uh, you know, an interest and. Uh, you know, incidentally, I got a graduate certificate in user experience design for educational media. So oh, wow. that's been kind of like a, you know, secondary path for a while. That's very cool. And I, I saw on your website that your fiance, John Resig, is a JavaScript expert. So I assume yeah. that that helps as well, having that collaboration as you're working <laughs> on things. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, funny, we both, uh, both had, um, basically teen web design businesses in, oh, in, really? our, in our separate experiences. So we had that background in common. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So when you sit down to create a new multimedia piece and you're thinking about all the different parts of it, what's your process? Do you write the music first or do you sketch out the whole vision? Or are you creating audio and video together? What? How do you approach it? Yeah. So it's interesting. I think no two projects are alike. So the process really depends on what that project is turning into and what motivated me to create it. Um, and, you know, I'll just give you an example. Um, my piece, California Zephyr, which is uh, from a number of years ago, I created the, um, I, I filmed footage out of the window of an, a long distance Amtrak train. I took a cross country train and took footage all along the way. And then, you know, 
put together all of that footage into essentially a short film with music, but I composed the music while I was editing the footage because I really uh-huh. wanted the structure of both the visual and the musical to be very closely synced down to, you know, certain cuts landing on certain beats and such. Um, And then ultimately that was created for live performance with video projection. And the performers used a click track to help them stay synced with the video. So that was one project where the two elements were sort of um, particularly integrated and very much conceived simultaneously. That's cool. Is, Is an example of that one on your website? Yeah, California Zephyr, uh, there's a video of it on YouTube, and that's up on my website as well. And yeah, it's sort of, uh, I tried to capture the experience of basically seeing the, you know, landscapes of America passing by the window. That's cool. I'll have to look that one up. So I would like to explore a line uh, from your online bio. It says, quote, she evokes landscapes, visual art, and the lives of mavericks in her lyrical works for concert and stage. So we'll talk more about being inspired by visual art later in the program today, but I'd like to ask you about the Mavericks. Which Mavericks have inspired you and why? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the Mavericks that I've written about, and I should say that a lot of my works have a narrative element, so whether they're vocal or instrumental. So a lot of the stories I'm drawn to focusing on are telling stories of Mavericks, of people who have pushed against societal expectations in pursuit of a life that's meaningful and authentic to them. And a lot of those um, inspirations have been historical figures, especially um, artists like Georgia O'Keeffe, um, the Japanese-American artist Shira Obata, the you know early 20th century arts patron Mabel Dodge Lujan like there's a lot of really interesting figures from history who I'm drawn to exploring through my work um and also a lot of fictional characters who embody a maverick spirit hmm. so um for example the my most recent piece called the fire tower is a mini opera it's a 25 minute opera for two singers and piano and it tells an original story of Um, a female mule packer who works for the forest service and a teacher who's quit her job to go take up a solitary post as a fire lookout in a fire tower in a, a, the deep wilderness. And these two sort of maverick women um, bond over their shared experiences. So, uh, you know, this, these kinds of themes are really compelling and interesting in their own right as human stories, but they also provide a point of entry for both me and the audience into really interesting subject matter, you know, whether that's climate change or the avant-garde art scene in 1920s New Mexico. So I I just love finding that lens and finding that as the way into entering into these topics through the music. Yeah, I think that's very cool. And I have to say the reason that, one of the reasons that it caught my attention was at the high school that I teach at now, the mascot is the Mavericks. And so the, oh. <laughs> the name just catches my attention every time I see it now. <laughs> it is. It's a fun word. It's, yeah. a, it's a fun term. <laughs> so now as a professional composer, you have deadlines for compositions that you're expected to meet. So how do you navigate the balance between meeting deadlines and staying true to your artistic vision? Yeah. So, you know, this might sound strange, strange, but I actually really like deadlines because I find that they help me structure my time in a way that kind of allows me to fully dig into a project and really immerse my focus in it and 
do the time management needed to make that possible and then be able to move on to the next thing and really dig into that. And so um, I like to be able to have those deadlines and make informed decisions about when I schedule projects and, you know, that kind of like uh, managing side. Um, but I, it's interesting because I think there's really, in my experience, the two most time-consuming stages of the compositional process for me are the pre-compositional work of sort of ideas gestating over long periods of time in ways that are sometimes subconscious and um, you know, having those gears turning in the background so that when you sit down to write, um, the music is ideally at your fingertips, right? <laughs> so that's the most time-consuming part. And then the next most time-consuming part for me is working out the technical details of voice leading and, and orchestrational nuances and just the engraving and, you know, making parts. And somewhere in the middle is like the deep concentration artistic generative part which I think when you say artistic vision that is sort of like the most sacred time of the compositional process and I think for me that doesn't actually take a lot of time sometimes it happens very quickly mm. and so it's that planning developing conceiving stage and then that technical execution stage are the things that I really have to build into my schedule <laughs> right do you have yeah. a, a certain time of day that you compose? Like, do you have a, a set chunk of time each day that you sit down and work? I, you know, I don't have um, like a consistent, like every day at this time, I do this many hours. Like I, I'm not, that's kind of not how my brain works. But when I am deep into a project, I think usually like late morning to late afternoon, sort of that good middle of the day time when I've uh -huh. like, had my tea, but I'm still awake, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's my ideal nap time is right in there. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I've got one more question for you before we take a quick break. And this sure. is non-music related. What was your favorite trip you've ever taken and what made it so memorable? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, it's hard to pick a favorite, but I think one that um, made a big impression on me was, I guess it was 2015. We traveled to England and did uh, what's called in, in the UK a walking holiday. A and walking um, holiday. <laughs> I know, very British. And uh, we, we went to the Dartmoor, which is a national park in England. And I'd always wanted to go there because the images of the place looked incredible. Um, there's all these incredible granite tours, these rock formations and beautiful um, ancient forests covered in moss. And the really interesting thing about walking in Britain is that there's all of these footpaths that give you right of way going through all kinds of private property. So you're able to like walk through someone's farm and walk continuously from village to village in the countryside. And we actually got a, a luggage transfer service, which sounds very fancy, but it's not that expensive, where basically a very nice fellow came, picked up our suitcases and then drove them to the inn we were staying the next night. So it was like a kind of a luxury wilderness experience, <laughs> yeah. I guess. Um, so but it was you get to spend the day out in the wilderness and then spend the night yeah. in the inn, not have to yeah. put up a and tent. Then have, <laughs> right, and have some good like bangers and mash. And yeah, so it was it was a great way to experience the English countryside. Yeah, that sounds very cool. Okay, well, after we take a quick break, we're going to listen to some of Nell's compositions. 
Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Nell Shaw Cohen. We're going to start today with Woman Walking for soprano solo and piano. So this piece was commissioned by soprano Laura Strickling for her 40 at 40 project, though I understand that you also incorporated this into the Sauntering Songs cantata. Uh, there are several shifts of mood through this piece. So talk to us about what you wanted to capture in this piece, as well as about the commission. The So Laura approached me uh, for the, to do this commission for her 40 at 40 project. And her concept was for her 40th birthday, she was going to commission 40 composers to write 40 songs, which is, I think, such a wonderfully ambitious project, which she's executed incredibly. Um, and I, I really wanted this song to have, you know, as large a life as I could. And I proposed to her, hey, can I write you a song that will also appear in a different form in my cantata, um, sauntering songs, as you mentioned. She said, yeah, go for it. She gave me a lot of creative freedom with that. And so um, all of the songs in sauntering songs are about walking in one way or another. And I'd been reading uh, the book Wanderlust by Rebecca Solnit, and she sp speaks in a very compelling way about women in urban environments and the constraints and thrills and sort of challenges of being a solitary woman walking in an urban setting. And so I commissioned my sister, Megan Cohen, who's uh, a librettist and playwright, to write the lyrics for this song because I felt like that subject matter was something that she could really bring life to. So the song um, presents uh, a flaneuse, which is the female version of the literary flaneur, who's like an urban explorer and observer of city life. And um, it really follows this woman along the city streets. And Laura performed the piece live several times. And the recording that we're hearing today is from her studio album, 40 at 40, which presents the first 20 songs from her project. And it was actually nominated for this year's um, Grammy for classical solo vocal album, very well deserved. So yeah, Laura and um, her pianist partner, Daniel Schlossberg, gave incredible performance on this. That's awesome. So it sounds like the the text is almost the opposite of your trip through England. Instead of wandering through the wilderness, you're wandering through the streets of a city, uh, yeah. taking your, your little walking tour there. And there's there's certainly differences and, and similarities. And yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting contrast. Okay, well, we are going to listen to Laura Strickling performing Woman Walking with Daniel Schlossberg on piano. Chalking 
all right, next we're going to listen to A Long Way uh, for SATV Choir with text by William Stanley Braithwaite. Would you be okay if I read this text to the piece? Sure, yeah. It's a long way the sea wind blows or over the sea plains blue, but longer far has my heart to go before its dreams come true. It's work we must and love we must and do the best we may and take the hope of dreams and trust to keep us day by day. It's a long way the sea wind blows, but somewhere lies a shore. Thus down the tide of time shall flow my dreams forevermore. So I understand that these words resonated with you during the COVID-19 pandemic. So tell us more about what moved you and and how they helped you. Yeah, so this this piece originated as a commission from Skylark Vocal Ensemble with the particular um, sort of prompt of writing something that felt uh, suitable to the moment, that spoke to the moment. And this was... um, gosh, I guess in summer or fall 2020. So, you know, right at the peak of the pandemic. And they were, they had an educational initiative where they were commissioning works specifically for virtual choirs in, you know, during a time when choirs couldn't rehearse in person. And so they wanted something that could um, really make that translation to asynchronous recording um, for high school and college students Mm -hmm. specifically. And so this text, I felt the the sort of hopeful yearning that it expresses and the sense of longing I really resonated with me at the time. And, you know, it, it was just, if even though the poem is from 1904, <laughs> it felt very alive. And um, it, it, I think it really did kind of land for the purpose for which it was meant and was recorded by virtual choirs as well as in-person choirs. Um, and the recording we're hearing is from uh, Skylark's uh, 2021 studio album, which was uh, named, this was the title track of the album, It's a Long Way, and that they did a beautiful job recording that. Yeah. So I, w- I was interested in the way you ended the piece. You end on this half cadence without a resolution. So why the inconclusive ending? Um, You know, it's because there's a sense of yearning. It's kind of uh, very unresolved. It's it's a, a hope for the for a future that may come. Uh-huh. Um, you know, no one knew how things were going to turn out at this point. We still don't never will really. So it didn't feel right to kind of end that that piece with a tidy bow, you know, um, and the writer, I should mention really interesting history. Um, William Stanley Braithwaite was, uh, an African-American self-taught poet who was also a publisher and anthologist and, um, helped bring the Harlem Renaissance poets to the public. Mm. So he had, he has an interesting historical role as well that I was kind of drawn to engaging with. All right. Okay, well, we are going to listen to Skylark Vocal Ensemble uh, singing It's a Long Way, which is the title track from their album.
All right, third, we're going to listen to The Sphinx and the Milky Way, an orchestral tone poem inspired by the paintings of Charles E. Birchfield. So I saw on your site that you actually have several pieces inspired not only by Birchfield, but also other visual artists as well. So how do you go about creating a piece based on visual art? Uh, uh, that's, you know, been a major focal point of my body of work, one of, one of the main themes that run through my work. And I think that I have a very musical response to visuals and also visual response to musical ideas. And um, so Birchfield's art in particular is so musical, I feel, and it's, it's quality. And Birchfield, I think, was also very inspired by sound and music. And a lot of his paintings, um, he, he was an early 20th century uh, watercolor painter. A lot of his paintings um, border and abstraction and depict the natural world in a very unique and visionary way, sometimes visualizing sound like the sounds of birdsong or crickets or cicadas in the use of line and color. And so when I'm looking at that as a composer, I'm thinking about reflecting my sort of visceral emotional reaction to it, as well as you know, um, finding basically musical corollaries, corollaries in musical language to what I'm seeing visually. Um, so for this particular piece, uh, it's a work for orchestra inspired by Birchfield's paintings in general, but particularly the title painting, The Sphinx and the Milky Way. And this painting, which is from the 1940s, it depicts a glowing sphinx moth pollinating this glowing flower in the middle of a garden. And there's a, a stunning night sky with a very dramatic interpretation of the Milky Way. And so um, in my orchestral writing, I tried to capture a little bit of that shimmering character, the glowing, the shimmering, the mystery of the night sky and the feeling of, um, you know, energy within the dark shadowed garden at, in, on a summer's night. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to listen to the Sphinx in the Milky Way. I'm excited about listening to this now. Uh, we're going to listen to the recording by the Dayton Philharmonic Orchestra with Patrick Reynolds' conductor.
All right, our last piece today, Prologue, The Open Road, and Their Stories, the first two movements from Sauntering Songs. So this is a, a cantata for vocal soloists, chamber choir, flute, guitar, piano, and cello. The whole work was just recorded and released this year on an album by Skylark, Skylark Vocal Ensemble in collaboration with guitarist James Moore and members of the uh, Juventus New Music Ensemble. So I love the description from your website, which I want to read. It's a love letter to wanderlust. Sauntering songs weaves together art songs, choral music, and literature into an expansive cantata on the theme of walking. All right, break it down for us. Tell us about writing this piece. Yeah. Uh, so this this was yet another commission from Skylark, um, my third project with them. And it is probably my favorite project of my career to date. And I think the piece that most encapsulates what I'm trying to do as a composer and librettist. And um, the piece celebrates a series of diverse characters who are searching for freedom and fulfillment through journeys on foot. So, you know, many different kinds of walking from through hiking to strolling on city streets, as we heard earlier. And it has a series of songs that alternate with choral pieces, sort of um, both accompanied by the chamber ensemble and unaccompanied, sort of in the manner of a Baroque oratorio. Mm -hmm. So it has these elements running through it, as well as um, sp spoken narration. And uh, the piece is really kind of following those threads all the way through. And so the, the first two movements that we'll hear um, are really introducing some core themes that are explored throughout the eight songs and many choral pieces. Um, the first, the prologue is a setting of excerpts from the Walt Whitman poem, um, Song of the Open Road. And the second movement is my original text um, for their stories, which introduces all the various characters that appear in the songs. And uh, with the chorus kind of introducing the central question of the work, um, which is if walking is an essential way of being free and unafraid as our full solitary selves, then who may claim the right to be in this world? So it's really exploring walking as a form of fulfillment, personal expression, self-actualization, and also engaging with barriers to access, the ways in which public spaces may be open or closed to different kinds of people in different times and places. Oh, very interesting. So tell me about working with Skylark. Uh, what is it like working with this ensemble? Are you involved in the recording process at all? Yeah, um, Skylark is, you know, wonderful, creative um, collaborator, um, artistic partners. And for this project, I uh, joined them on tour. They, they took this piece on a tour of three venues in Massachusetts, and we did a live recording. And I was able to join them for their full rehearsal process and the recording session and kind of, you know, provide guidance you know, if desirable, if needed, there's such an incredible ensemble that it's not like <laughs> you need to be doing that, but they, they humored me. Um, and, and, uh, also Juventus New Music Ensemble, who I've worked with many times, um, it, you know, it was a pleasure to have them as part of the project as well. Um, and guitarist James Moore kind of adding a whole other sonic element to the palette of Skylark's voices. Yeah. Okay, well, let's listen to a prologue, The Open Road, and the stories, the first two movements from Sauntering Songs from the Skylark Vocal Ensemble album of the same name with Matthew Gard, conductor.
herself from garden walls. A thru-hiker takes to the trail late in life. A disabled hiker on a mountain walk. A solitary woman saunters city streets. Two friends go bird-watching in the suburbs. trespasses in the countryside. Two generations tread the same path. A wanderer walks the American West. Well, Nell, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? You know, at the moment, I'm kind of like a l- on a little bit of a music generating break, I would say. Oh, nice. I'm, you know, I'm percolating ideas. I'm doing admin, essentially. <laughs> um, but I, I wrote 
a lot of material in the last couple of years. You know, I just finished that um, short opera, The Fire Tower, uh, which was just workshopped um, at the University of Texas, San Antonio. So I'm hoping to get back a recording from them and do a little bit of revising on that soon. Um, and then before that, you know, sauntering songs uh, was, uh, you know, many years in the making. And I, you know, have also written chamber works and um, the starts of a few operas over the past few years. So at the moment, I'm just, you know, kind of reflecting, regenerating, um, gathering new ideas, you know. Um, and I think it's important to have space for that and to not just be um, putting out material constantly so that you have time to kind of do that pre-compositional um, sure. idea synthesis. Absolutely. So if my listeners want to learn more about you, what's your website? Where are you located online? Yeah. Uh, so my website is nellshawcohen.com. Um, Nell with two L's. And yeah, and I'm, you know, on all the social media platforms. Um, and I have a mailing list on my website, which I uh, send, you know, roughly quarterly with updates of all my current projects. So if folks want to, you know, keep in touch with what I'm doing, that's a great way to do it. And the sign up is on nellshawcohen.com. Excellent. Well, hey, listeners out there, your financial support plays a pivotal role in sustaining the excellence of Movable Dough. By becoming a, a supporting member, you contribute to the production of high-quality content, secure, captivating guests, and enable me to continue bringing these remarkable interviews to your ears. Movable Dough brings you exclusive conversations with both emerging talents and established maestros. You gain insights into their creative process, learn about their favorite compositions, and get a glimpse into the future of classical and contemporary music. Visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough to become a supporting member of Movable Dough. Nell Cohen, it has been so much fun to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Steve. Yeah, it was great talking with you. My guest today was composer Nell Shaw Cohen. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Nell Shaw Cohen, welcome to Movable Doen. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm going to say that again because I just realized I said I, I rhymed with your name, Cohen and Doen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say that again.